You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Others, when they ask us 
uh, well, if Christianity is true, then what about this, or what about that, or mm -hmm. why don't you believe this doctrine over here, or why don't you believe that religion over there? Uh, and in fact, early in my uh, Christian life, uh, the second year really that I was a Christian, I had lengthy conversations over a period of several months with a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who knew a lot more at the time than I did. Mm -hmm. And so they were uh, very challenging to my belief. And in the process of working through the issues with them, I came to uh, have a real passion for uh, understanding uh, what the Bible teaches and how it compares with religions like that of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in regard to, uh, for example, uh, what they teach on the resurrection or uh, the deity of Christ or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And so really it was dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses at first that propelled me into this kind of work. Uh, I I really wasn't pursuing it as a as a career. I was pursuing it as a matter of my own personal uh, need to deal with these issues and to work through them because I've, I've just not been the kind of person who would settle into a belief and then just uh, accept it and, and move on and, and not, not wrestle with the questions as they come. Uh, I seem to attract uh, <laughs> people with uh, different points of view and I've always been interested in what they have to say and, and wanting to uh, learn uh, from anybody that might have something to say that I, uh, you know, I'm not already familiar with. So uh, that's really what's kept me going on this. I, I found myself uh, talking with people who had neighbors who were Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever it might have been, and eventually found myself having conversations with leading Jehovah's Witness apologists, and ended up. Uh, getting into uh, Christian apologetics ministry, uh, dealing with uh, groups like that, uh, addressing these kinds of issues and teaching Christians to understand these issues uh, sound uh, in a sound and, and uh, biblical fashion, and went to seminary to study the, uh, the, uh, the Bible and, and Christian theology in an in-depth way uh, as preparation for that. So. It's what I've been doing my entire adult life, and after having spent a lot of time dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, which is still an area of research of mine, uh, I found uh, a similar need with Mormonism. Now, I, I guess I should explain that the, the aspect of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that particularly uh, interested me was what uh, theologians uh, call hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. and specifically biblical hermeneutics, uh, the uh, science or the discipline of properly interpreting the, the Bible. And I found that most of the issues that divided uh, evangelical Christians from Jehovah's Witnesses were hermeneutical. That is, we differed on how one interprets the Bible. And I found that very few people were familiar, uh, that is, very few Christians were familiar enough with uh, biblical exegesis and hermeneutics in order to be able to uh, respond mm -hmm. adequately, accurately, uh, and in any kind of uh, in-depth fashion to what the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, were saying about the interpretation of various passages in the Bible. So that became an area of specialization, if you will, of mine was uh, 
bringing the stu bringing biblical studies uh, to uh, the issues uh, that separate uh, Christians, Orthodox Christians, uh, from groups like Jehovah's Witnesses. And eventually, I, I found myself uh, drawn to dealing with the same issues with Mormonism. Mm -hmm. There's an even bigger need for this in Mormonism because uh, Mormonism has a cadre of uh, scholars, theologians, and apologists who have studied to varying degrees uh, biblical studies, who have studied uh, languages like uh, Greek and Hebrew and so forth, and who attempt to use uh, the findings of modern biblical scholarship to support the Book of Mormon, which we're going to talk about, uh, and to support other aspects of Mormonism, including its doctrine. And frankly, there is almost no one else who is professionally, academically trained in biblical studies and theology uh, writing uh, on the subject of Mormonism. I, I know of really only two other individuals that come to mind uh, who've done anything in this area. And it, it's just, there's a, there's a crying need for it. And so the last seven years, where I, when I've been at the Institute for Religious Research, which specializes in Mormonism, I've been really playing catch-up on that issue. I've been spending a lot of time researching Mormonism, reading all of the scholarship that the Mormons have put out, and it's quite overwhelming, mm -hmm. and working through the arguments, trying to work through them as fairly and uh, objectively as I can, remaining open to whatever information or insights they may have. And I'm at a point now after seven years and working on a dissertation on the Book of Mormon and, and other uh, projects that I feel that I'm uh, up to speed uh, on Mormon scholarship and able to respond to its uh, abuse, really, of biblical scholarship uh, and of uh, biblical studies generally in their attempts to defend Mormonism. So that's kind of where I've come. It's, it's been a long journey. Uh, studying Mormonism is a daunting task because it's a very complex religion with a very complicated history. Uh, its theology has shifted and changed and morphed and nuanced over the 190 years or so uh, of its existence, uh, nearly 190 years now. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very complicated uh, thing to look at. They don't just say, okay, this is what we think the Bible means, as Jehovah's Witnesses do, <laughs> and then you just go right to it. You also have to look at their history. There are other scriptures that they add to the Bible, like the Book of Mormon, uh, and it's very complicated. So I have spent a lot of time just sorting through the issues, uh, reading the literature, uh, getting familiar with the Mormon scriptures uh, in a very in-depth way. Of course, I was familiar with them years years ago, but really now uh, look, approaching them, uh, frankly, in an academic way in order to make sure that I understand the issues uh, as much as possible. So that's that's what I've been focusing on doing, and I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that I feel like I'm at a point now where I can talk intelligently about these things and am uh, able to help people understand the issues. Okay. Well, in <clears throat> preparation for this interview, I was going through a book I got sent called uh, Talking Doctrine, Mormons and Evangelicals in Conversation. Oh, and yes. And I have to say, I, I find it pretty concerning because it looks like too many Evangelicals are going to say, you know, we're really not as different as we thought we were, and some of them are 
it looks like a storm say, well, you know, we there's not much reason why we shouldn't consider Mormons Christians. I mean, d- does that concern you some? Uh, yes. Now, I, I, I think in fairness, some of the uh, evangelicals who've participated in those uh, discussions that are reflected in that book uh, are, you know, they're not saying that Mormonism is Christian. Right. Uh, but uh, Craig Blomberg, for example, uh, does not take that position. He he agrees that Mormonism is not Christian. Mm-hmm. They they all understand, of course, that Mormonism is not Orthodox, that it's not a sound form of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's it's a little bit of a complicated story right there because a number of these evangelicals uh, have made various statements that uh, I would argue uh, show. Uh, that they are, as it were, not only bending over backwards to be fair, but they've really fallen in bending over backwards. They've fallen mm-hmm. back, and they have uh, not accurately understood the real issues. And Mormons are very good at, that. that the scholars are very good at presenting things in such a way that it sounds like it's either what Orthodox Christians believe or so close to it that there's no reason to uh, get too up in arms about it. And one of the areas where this comes up is that Mormons have often tried to argue that their view on deification, the idea of human beings becoming gods, is something that is very similar to what you find in the early church fathers and in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. Well, the language of becoming gods is there, but the theological substance that it expresses is very different. It's radically different in Mormonism than it is in the Eastern Orthodox tradition or in the patristics. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, there are there are Christian scholars who've been involved in these discussions who have noted some of those differences. But unfortunately, the, the emphasis in these discussions seems to be on... Uh, it does seem a bit lopsided to be making evangelicals more comfortable with Mormonism, uh, making, uh, you know, taking the position that evangelical apologists who have criticized Mormonism have done so unfairly, uh, whereas there's very little uh, indication of a reverse movement of Mormons mm-hmm. saying, you know, what we've said about evangelicalism has not been accurate or fair. Uh, you find occasional references to that, but it's it's very muted and very trivial compared to uh, what uh, what has been said by these people about evangelical ministries that reach out to Mormons with the gospel, with criticisms of Mormon claims, and so forth. So I do think there's an imbalance there. I, I do think that statements have been made uh, that were simply inaccurate. Uh, Mormonism. Uh, does teach that God was once a mortal man who became a God. That is Mormon theology. Mm-hmm. Some Mormon scholars, a minority of Mormon scholars, are either attempting to deny that that's the position of the church, or at least say, well, we don't really know if that's the position, or we don't really know what, uh, any, you know any details about that, so we're not going to talk about that. They, they may not know a lot of details about God's prehistory before he became a God, but Joseph Smith explicitly taught that God has not always been God. And the failure of, frankly, in, in many cases, of the evangelicals in these discussions 
to press this point uh, is disconcerting. I wish that they would say, you know what, uh, we're happy to have a polite conversation, but we really want you to address the fact that your own founder clearly taught that God has not always been God. Rather than just say, well, we don't really emphasize that part or we don't really talk about that much or whatever, which is is really a, a diversion or a, an avoidance of the issue. I remember even that <clears throat> I read about an interview with Gordon Hinckley, who was a former president and prophet of the Mormon Church, and he used to have the doctrine of divine exhortation, as his colleagues would say. I, I really don't know if we teach it or not, and I just feel like you're the one in charge. You better know what your own church is teaching. <laughs> yes, I think uh, Gordon Hinckley was not candid in mm -hmm. those interviews about what the church taught. And later on, there's actually a record of him having spoken in a Mormon gathering and saying, oh, yeah, we're we're very much aware of what we teach on that subject. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, he said one thing to Time Magazine and another thing to his own church, and that's... Mm -hmm. That's uh, first of all, that's not very smart in the internet age, uh, yeah. uh, because you you will be caught. <laughs> People mm -hmm. will notice uh, the difference. And and the other thing is, uh, I think that there is a history in Mormonism, and it goes back to Joseph Smith. So this isn't just picking on Gordon Hinckley or one individual here or there. Yeah. There is a history of Mormon leadership uh, dissembling. Uh, not telling the straight truth, not being candid, not being honest, in some cases even lying uh, about what they know to be the case. Uh, it goes back to Joseph Smith, who actually, in, for example, encouraged people, uh, and did so himself, to lie about their, the fact that he was practicing polygamy. Mm -hmm. uh, now Mormons have excuses, that the ones that know that he did this, that he lied about it, they give excuses for him doing so, but the fact is he did. He lied about it. Others lied about it, and uh, there is there's a precedent that was set there uh, that Mormons are willing to go along. Well, they claim that they, and, and for the most part, I think, in their regular lives do emphasize the value of uh, and the virtue of honesty and truth-telling, uh, that when it comes to uh, the church, they're prepared to shade the truth or to uh, go along with uh, half-truths uh, in order to avoid uh, giving the church a bad reputation. And I think we're seeing uh, that coming back now to really bite the LDS church in a big way. Because we're in the Internet age, it's very difficult for people for the church to keep information from their own people. And this is to get to the subject that we were going to discuss uh, today, this really gets to the issue of the seer stone. The LDS Church, uh, for years, said almost nothing. They did mention it a few times in a few places without really going into any detail or explanation, but they have, for the most part, avoided talking about Joseph Smith's seer stone, and until very recently, never gave any explanation as to its historical context or what it meant. Well, they they weren't they're not able to get away with it anymore. There's too much information that's too easily accessible to too many Mormons online about the seer stone and everything else. And so, for the last couple of years, the LDS Church has been quietly publishing articles on their website, trying to address as many of these kinds of issues as possible. 
publishing Joseph Smith's uh, papers, uh, for example, online as well as in uh, very uh, beautifully produced uh, hardback uh, volumes, where everything that Joseph Smith ever read, wrote, or ever dictated, uh, and all the manuscripts of them, and and all his letters and his journal entries and everything, and they're they're putting on a big show of transparency. We've got nothing to hide. They say we're just we're gonna we're gonna get it all out there. We're gonna address all these issues. Well, they've been forced to do that uh, by the internet uh, exposing all of this information uh, to many people. In fact, uh, it got so bad that in 2013 it made the front page of the New York Times that there was a significant movement of European Mormons who were saying, we don't know what to think now because we, re we believe that the church has not been honest with us about Joseph Smith's polygamy, about the Book of Abraham, which is another Mormon scripture, about Joseph Smith's seer stone, and this and that and the other thing, about blacks in the priesthood. That was another issue that had to be addressed in the last couple of years. And so they have, they have put on a big show of transparency. And in fact, what they just did uh, in August was they published uh, color photographs of the seer stone so that people could see what it looked like. And they published articles about it, talked about Joseph's uh, use of the seer stone, and, and tried to make it seem like they were being very forthcoming and candid about addressing these issues. Well, you would think that a religion that was uh, founded by a prophet of God and that was led by prophets throughout its history and that was, you know, the, the, the that had the fullness of the gospel and the, the purest and most... Uh, uh, robust form of Christian uh, mm -hmm. faith would have been transparent all along, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but they they have they they really were not uh, and did everything they could to suppress this information uh, as much as possible until uh, it got to be impossible to do that. Yeah, and Mormonism has certainly been making the news elsewhere in the past few years in our country. I mean. We could have elected a Mormon president last election, yes. for instance, and I, I remember what Bill McKeever said on his side, said, you know, a lot of uh, people do think Mormons are going to hell, but they wouldn't mind having one in the White House. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, in 2012, our our choices were rather limited, weren't they? Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the general election uh, between two individuals, both of whom claimed to be Christian, but neither one of whom ad adhered to Orthodox mm. uh, Christian beliefs, uh, and uh, so that's that was the situation. And you you had to, if you were going to vote at all, you had to pick one of those two. But uh, yes, the fact that uh, Mitt Romney uh, nearly became president. Uh, drew a lot of attention and scrutiny to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was also the Book of Mormon uh, Broadway play. And uh, so Mormonism had what the, the media called the Mormon moment. Uh, Mormonism became something that was chic to talk about. And uh, uh, there was an incredible media interest in Mormonism. Maybe not so much now as there was, but it's still, you know, it's it's still very much a part of uh, of the fixture of the American culture, and so uh, it's it's that's another reason why the church was forced to address some of these issues is because the media scrutiny the past several years, uh, everything became 
uh, out there in the open and needed to be addressed, especially the cultural issues, such as uh, the history of racism and the Mormon religion and things like that, but all these other issues as well. Now, when we're talking about the seer stone, what exactly are we talking about? Well, yes, let me explain what this is. A seer stone is a small uh, rock that you can hold in your hand very easily, uh, fits in the palm of your hand typically, and uh, they were very popular in the uh, early 19th century. Uh, that's not when the, the use of these began, but it was a very common feature in um, in uh, early uh, frontier, you know, America in the early 19th century when Joseph Smith lived. And what what you did with it was you would uh, use this stone uh, to hunt for buried treasure or perhaps other items such as uh, somebody lost. Uh, something and they they needed to find it for whatever reason. Of course, they they wouldn't be looking for car keys. We might be using it today if, for that if we thought we it would do any good. But uh, they didn't have that then. But what are, you know, items like that. People would look for items that were lost. But most commonly, the seer stone was used uh, to search for buried treasure. And uh, in some cases, the stone had a little aperture or hole in the middle. Uh, that you could peer through uh, and use it almost like a, uh, you were peeping, vision. Peeping, through a, peeping through the stone in order to yeah. find something. And yeah. for that reason, it was called a peep stone. Mm-hmm. And there were other names for it, but peep stone was... Uh, and some people were just called a glass uh, because in some cases it was uh, either... Of translucent or it was just something people claimed to be able to see things in whether they could or not and uh, other people in Joseph's immediate uh, neighborhood had these even before he did the best known example of this was a, a neighbor girl named Sally Chase Sally had a peep stone uh, and she was uh, she had quite a reputation uh, for her use of this and the story is that Joseph borrowed Sally's peepstone to find his own first peepstone and eventually Joseph had we believe at least three uh, seer stones or peepstones and he may have had as many as five or six but we know of two or three of them and uh, there's pictures of three of them online in various places including now the the, the most famous one which is a, a ovalish, uh, egg-shaped, uh, but a little bit flatter than an egg, but more or less egg-shaped, and, and uh, a little smaller also than an egg, uh, stone that's very smooth and is various shades of dark brown almost to, to being black and lighter brown, and it looks kind of like a small Easter egg. Looks like a chocolate-colored Easter egg. And Joseph used that stone to hunt for buried treasure on various occasions. Then when Joseph got married and his father-in-law uh, said, I'll help you and my daughter, but you have to promise to quit 
using uh, the peep stone and searching for buried treasure with it, uh, Joseph uh, agreed to that and within a month announced that he had found the gold plates uh, and, and obtained the gold plates that from which he later on claimed that he had translated the Book of Mormon. Well, uh, the, uh, the way that Joseph translated the gold plates remains a matter of some controversy, but uh, as people have known for quite a long time, uh, the testimonies of most of Joseph's close associates years later after he had died and they were in different parts of the country and giving interviews to Chicago newspapers and so forth, their testimony was when they saw Joseph uh, producing the Book of Mormon, the way he did it was he would dictate the Book of Mormon. By the way, Joseph didn't write any of the Book of Mormon manuscript except perhaps, from what we can tell, one sentence. Um, I'm not sure why he did that one sentence, but um, apparently his, his scribes are all uh, busy at the moment. But he, he would dictate the manuscript uh, to a scribe who would write it down. And the way he would dictate it was he would put the seer stone in his hat. He would then uh, bury his face in the hat, uh, reportedly so he could block out any external light. And he could, so it would be pitch dark in the hat. And then he would look at the seer stone in the hat and words would be illuminated uh, on or in the stone or in the hat somehow from the stone and he would read out loud the words he said he could see on the stone and the scribe would write down what Joseph said out loud and there that was the way that they would produce the Book of Mormon so Joseph was literally talking out of his hat <laughs> mm -hmm. when he dictated the Book of Mormon well now this is not the traditional story the traditional story, which is found in one of the Mormon scriptures, a little, short little book called Joseph Smith History, written by or dictated by Joseph Smith himself. In fact, this part was uh, at one place written by Joseph in his own hand in an earlier version. Uh, according to Joseph Smith's official account in, in Mormon scripture in Joseph Smith History, Joseph translated the Book of Mormon using a pair of stone spectacles that he found with the gold plates in a stone box shown to him by the angel who brought, who brought him to the site and showed him where the, where the plates were located. According to the account, the stone spectacles were a pair of uh, transparent, uh, perhaps a diamond or other kind of uh, glass like uh, material, rock material that he could see through. Mm -hmm. They were, they were uh, placed in uh, a frame, much like a very large pair of glasses. And he would look through the, according to the account, he would use these spectacles, these stone spectacles, uh, to interpret uh, what was on the gold plates and uh, to to translate them into English. Well, we now know that Joseph did not use stone spectacles. He did not place stone spectacles on his face and look at the gold plates through the stone spectacles and see English where there was or formed Egyptian or whatever it was. Instead, he buried his face in his hat with the seer stone in it and dictated what he claimed he could see on the stone. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, this this is disturbing to many Mormons because it's not consistent with the story that's in the Mormon scripture uh, and because it's a little bit disconcerting to hear that Joseph used the same stone to translate the Book of Mormon that he had used to search for buried treasure for several years before supposedly finding the Book of Mormon. In other words, this is a treasure hunting rock that Joseph Smith used for years uh, and then he's supposedly using the same device to translate the Book of Mormon. Now, if you believe in seer stones and you believe that people can find buried treasure by looking in a rock in their hat, uh, which is, by the way, that's the same method he used to search for the treasure. He would supposedly look at the stone in his hat and be led to the place where they were supposed to dig for the treasure. If you believe that's true and that Joseph really was able to do that, and he had some kind of supernatural power or some kind of preternatural gift to be able to do this with the stone, uh, then I suppose you could say, you could convince yourself that uh, God could use that same gift to translate the Book of Mormon. But most people today don't believe in seer stones. They don't believe in peep stones. They don't think you can find treasure by looking at a rock in your hat. And the fact is, Joseph never found any such treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that raises serious questions about the validity of the Book of Mormon because apparently Joseph Smith was translating it using something that really didn't work. You know, we can also add in that it, it, it's something about, I wonder how different history would have been if we could have found what Lucy Harris saved. <laughs> well, that's a big story. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think people might like to hear this story because, again, with Mormonism, you're not simply dealing with, well, here's here are Mormons, and this is what they believe, this is how they understand the Bible, and it's different. Uh, their belief system is inextricably woven into and bound up with their history and the stories of how Mormonism got started. <clears throat> uh, Lucy Harris was the wife of Martin Harris. Martin was Joseph's first supporter. He was a pretty successful farmer uh, and a very religious uh, and arguably very superstitious individual who uh, was very excited by Joseph Smith's claim that he had these gold plates uh, that were ancient Jewish scriptures that he was going to to, uh, deliver uh, the meaning of them to the world. And Martin Harris uh, was Joseph's first scribe, where Martin took dictation for Joseph when Joseph was dictating uh, his translation from the gold plates. By the way, Martin never actually watched Joseph do the dictation. Uh, The accounts from both uh, friend and foe agree that when Martin was taking dictation, there was some kind of a curtain or blanket or sheet hung uh, up uh, to divide him from Joseph Smith so that he couldn't see Joseph when Joseph was doing the dictation, which, of course, uh, invites the uh, uh, comment, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, so Joseph would dictate the uh, his translation of the gold plates from behind the curtain, and Martin would write down what he heard Joseph saying. 
Well, they produced 116 pages of handwritten manuscript doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph, Joseph also was receiving financial support from Martin, as well as just the, all of this investment of time away from the farm by Martin doing all this dictation. Well, Martin's wife, Lucy, was very unhappy about all this. I can imagine. And she thought Martin was being... Uh, uh, swindled and taken advantage of and uh, defrauded and she demanded to see the gold plates and Joseph adamantly refused. In fact, Martin didn't get to see the gold plates during all of this translation process that he was involved in. Uh, he did supposedly see them a couple years later at the very end of the, of the story, but uh, when he was actually working on the dictation and translation, he never got to see the gold plates himself and no way was Lucy going to be allowed to see the gold plates. So Lucy said, well, at least let me see the pages of the manuscript. Let me read them so I can see what you're doing and, and you know, satisfy myself that you're not just, you know, partying with your buddy. Well, uh, Joseph reluctantly uh, agreed to allow Martin to take the pages home with him to show his wife supposedly only agreeing to it after a third appeal to God for permission to be allowed for Martin to be able to take the pages. Martin took the pages home, showed them to his wife and four other family members. Uh, they were locked in a dresser drawer, uh, so uh, supposedly they wouldn't get lost. Uh, but Martin also showed them to some of his friends, which he was told not to do. And one day, uh, the dresser drawer was discovered, broken into, and the pages missing. Hmm. And Martin had no idea what happened to the pages. He didn't know if his wife took them. He didn't know if a neighbor broke into the house and took them. They were never able to find the pages or find out what happened to them. It's a mystery to this day. The pages were never recovered. Martin uh, eventually... Uh, had his confrontation with Joseph when he had to admit to Joseph that he had lost the pages. Martin, Joseph was at first completely despondent and distraught about this. He, he, he made some kind of comments like, I'm ruined, you know, it's, it's, everything is, is, is ruined here. And he faced a very serious dilemma. If he attempted to dictate the same pages over, in other words, if he went back to and, and redictated his alleged translation from the gold plates from the beginning, and then later the pages turned up, if there was any difference between the two manuscripts, and of course there would be, he would be exposed as a fraud. Uh, and it, he couldn't just stop, though, you know, because that would be, in effect, an admission that he was a fraud. So he came up with the most ridiculous story I think I've ever heard, and I've heard some whoppers. He claimed that the Lord had foreseen thousands of years ago, you know, uh, almost, a couple thousand years ago, he had foreseen that this would happen. And so he had a second account of the same events written on another group of gold plates in the stack that Joseph had found. 
So there were at least two versions of the same story supposedly on the gold plates. And Joseph was going to be uh, given, he was given the instruction that he was going to be dictating a translation of the second version uh, so that there would be no issue about the differences that might show up between the first and second version. By the way, Joseph's explanation of this was if he if he translated them, it would have been the same, but he was supposedly worried that these enemies of his that he claimed had stolen the pages would have altered the wording on the pages to make him look bad. Uh, so Joseph dictated a, a completely a new account, of, allegedly, of the first part of what we now call the Book of Mormon uh, to replace the lost pages. And if you read the uh, preface to the 1830 original edition of the Book of Mormon, it's all about those lost pages. And Joseph saying, I did everything I could to find them, and despite my utmost exertion of effort, I could never find them. Now, there's a couple of really funny things here. Not the least of which is Joseph has a seer stone. Mm -hmm. And having a seer stone, if he's any good at it, he ought to be able to find lost stuff, <laughs> including a lost manuscript of 116 pages. Mm -hmm. Not only does Joseph have a seer stone and should be able to find the, the, the lost pages that way, he regularly hobnobs with an angel. And the angel certainly could have found the, play, the pages. And he also talks to God. God talks to him, gives him revelations. In fact, he gave, God gave Joseph Smith supposedly two revelations to address the issue of the lost pages. However, it apparently slipped God's mind to tell Joseph where the pages were or even what happened to them. Now, this all took place in 1828 and into early 1829 when this was, issue was resolved. Book of Mormon was published in 1830. That's 185 years uh, now it's been. The pages have never shown up. It is reasonable to infer that the pages were not simply stolen by somebody who was waiting uh, to reveal them to the world when Joseph published his Book of Mormon. Clearly what happened was the pages were destroyed. Most people think that Lucy herself burned them up. She threw them in the fire. Mm -hmm. Joseph didn't even get that right. He claimed in that preface that his enemies had the pages and were holding on to them in the hopes of exposing him as a fraud. He couldn't even get that right. So all of this really shows that Joseph is not a prophet of God. He's not receiving the translation by divine revelation. He's having to make it up as he goes along. And because he was making it up as he went along, he couldn't duplicate the material uh, adequately uh, in a second dictation. And so he just started over and came up with this ridiculous cover story to explain why this was necessary. By the way, God also gave, according to Joseph Smith, did give Joseph Smith permission to let Martin Harris take the pages home. Why would God do that if he knew this was going to happen? The questions become more and more numerous and more and more difficult the deeper you look into these stories. What do Mormons say when you present these claims to them? <coughs> Pardon me. 
Um, frankly, uh, the usual uh, response is to make an attempt to change the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, very often, Mormons will simply, uh, as the expression is, bear their testimony. They will yes. tell me that they have a testimony. They know Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. They know uh, that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Uh, if, if Joseph was n not inspired, how can you explain the Book of Mormon, they will argue. It's just too complicated a book. There's too many great things about it. They will try to change the subject in some fashion. Mm. You know, when, when I'm talking with people about Mormons, I always say whenever you start talking to a Mormon, if they start giving their testimony suddenly, that means you have hit a weak point, keep pushing. Yes, that is exactly correct. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Mormons have been trained to do this. Mm -hmm. they, it, it, it's modeled for them by their leaders all the time. It's, they have meetings weekly where people stand up and do this. Yes. And so this is not something that people do spontaneously. It is something that is part of the Mormon culture. It is something that they are taught to do, something that is modeled for them to do constantly and they have a very difficult time seeing anything wrong with it and they also uh, have been taught to twist certain biblical passages out of context to support the idea and so part of the a, a total response to Mormonism and again it's a very complicated situation because Mormonism is a very complex religion the part of the total comprehensive response is to show that these Bible passages really don't teach the idea of the testimony as Mormons understand it. Now, when you find when that kind of thing comes up, and again, I'm I'm a biblical scholar by training, and so that's where I'd like to go with people eventually if I can get there. Mm -hmm. What I find pe Mormons do though is that they will retreat from their use of the Bible when it becomes obvious that it's not working. Mm -hmm. And they will fall back on their confidence in the Mormon apostles and prophets, in Joseph Smith, and in their own experience that they claim that they've had that validates Mormonism as being true. And so very often what I will try to do when somebody, uh, when a Mormon brings up something in the Bible, I will as quickly as possible establish that their faith in this belief that they're trying to promote from the Bible isn't based on the Bible. And a good example of this is I recently had a discussion on Facebook with some Mormons, uh, one of whom was uh, bringing up 1 Corinthians 15.29 to support the Mormon practice of baptism for the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.29 is the only reference in the Bible to anything that might be called baptism for the dead. It uses that expression, doesn't really explain what it is. Right. So, <clears throat> Uh, he brings up 1 Corinthians 15.29 and he actually I don't know where he got it but he quoted some scholar uh, on the subject and, uh, so I said can we just uh, establish something first if it turned out that 1 Corinthians 15.29 did not support the practice of uh, proxy baptisms for all the dead who have ever lived in the history of the world who didn't get baptized in the Mormon religion if we can establish that that wasn't what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, uh, your, your belief in that practice really isn't based on this verse anyway. It's really based on the modern revelations that you believe God gave Joseph Smith. Yes, that's correct. So we, we, we established that, right? Because uh -huh. I don't want to waste time 
trying to uh, do exegesis with a Mormon who's not really interested in what the verse says, but is only interested in using it to prop up what they actually uh, base their belief on, which is Joseph Smith's revelations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when my wife and I had some uh, Mormons coming when we lived in Charlotte, this was our apartment together, and they kept going back to the uh, burning the bosom, the personal testimony and such, and now, in our relationship, I'm the one who's mainly the apologist, and my wife tends to sit back and watch them, but then she just spoke and said, um, a few years ago, I was in the hospital, and I was having severe hallucinations, and those seemed incredibly, incredibly real to me at the time, like bugs crawling on me and things of that sort, and they weren't, but they sure felt real. How do you know you're not having anything different? And I was thinking, okay, Allie, you have earned your gold star for the day, okay? <laughs> you did better than anything I'm saying. Well, I, that's, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting story. I, I tell Mormons, uh, when they pull the testimony on, uh, uh, ploy on me, mm-hmm. I say, look, um, I've read, th- th- their usual proof text for this is at the end of the Book of Mormon, where <clears throat> Moroni 10, verses 4 and 5, where it says, if you ask God sincerely with faith in Jesus Christ, if these things are true, then the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a quick paraphrase. So I, I will say to them, look, uh, I've satisfied the conditions of Moroni 10. I've read the Book of Mormon. Uh, I have prayed to ask God to make clear to me if the Book of Mormon is the, his word or not. I'm, I think I'm sincere. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have faith in Christ. I already believe in Christ. I don't need the Book of Mormon for that. I already believe in Christ. So as far as I can tell, I've satisfied all the conditions specified in Moroni 10, and yet I don't believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. I have not received a testimony from the Holy Spirit that the Book of Mormon is true. Uh, How do you explain that? And they have no explanation. So if they are are, uh, inclined, they may suggest that I'm really not sincere, Mm -hmm. (coughs) pardon me again, or that I didn't have the right attitude going into it. Uh, But that's really all they could say, because if I've satisfied all the conditions, and if the verse is true, and if the Book of Mormon is true, then I should have received some kind of manifestation or spiritual experience uh, confirming to me that the Book of Mormon is true. Let's be honest here. Mormons... Uh, very often uh, seek that experience because it's part of their culture. They've been taught, again, that you need to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have actually read uh, people explaining, Mormons explaining to other Mormons that this is something that you have to really, really want and you've got to pursue it hard and and, in fact, you have to want the Book of Mormon to be true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're Mormon and you are, or if you're not Mormon but you are attracted to Mormonism and you want it to be true and you want to have this experience and your friends have had this experience or your family members have had this experience and it's expected that you will have this experience uh, it, if you're going to accept Mormonism and live the Mormon lifestyle, <clears throat> then 
you're kind of setting yourself up emotionally to have some kind of feeling come over you or something that's going to convince you that Mormonism is true. One other thing I would mention here, just a second. <coughs> Pardon my, <coughs> my lingering cough here. Um, one other thing I would mention is that when non-Mormons uh, are evangelized or proselytized by Mormons, the Book of Mormon is the gateway. Right. Uh, it's the entry point. And what Mormons do is they will encourage non-Mormons to read the Book of Mormon and pray and ask God if they think it's if it to show them if it's the Word of God. Now, if the non-Mormon has heard anything about Mormonism, uh, they have heard that Mormonism is a is a non-Christian religion. It's a cult or whatever term is used. And the Book of Mormon is, you know, a bad book written by a false prophet. And so they're, they will approach the Book of Mormon thinking, well, if this isn't true, uh, it should be obvious. When you read the Book of Mormon, it's for most people who don't have a serious theological background or are not well taught in Christianity, it will not be obvious that the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. In mm -hmm. fact, if I may put it this way, a lot of the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, because a lot of the Book of Mormon quotes the Bible. <laughs> right. The King James, to be specific. And, and it, yes, specifically quotes the quotes or, or parrots words in the King James Version. Not only does it quote uh, two dozen chapters from the Old Testament, it duplicates almost exactly uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount as it reads in Matthew, and it uh, has a couple hundred quotations or near quotations from the New Testament scattered throughout the Book of Mormon, even in passages from, supposedly written before Jesus even came the first time. So uh, there's a lot of Bible in the Book of Mormon. What's not Bible is, generally speaking, very pious, uh, Christian-sounding language. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, explicitly Christian language attributed to the prophets who were living in the Americas before Jesus even came, mm -hmm. talking about Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will, he will uh, heal the sick and raise the dead and make the lame to walk and the blind to see, and they will accuse him of having a, de a devil, and uh, they, he will be crucified, and the third day he will rise again. It's all laid out very explicitly. Um, in, in, uh, in, in books supposedly written hundreds of years before Jesus even came. Mm -hmm. This sounds even more Christian than the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the Christianity of the Book of Mormon is largely a kind of uh, rude frontier Methodist, you know, Wesleyan uh, revivalist kind of piety. <clears throat> In fact, some of the sermons that these prophets in the Book of Mormon uh, preach are revivalist sermons, that very similar to what you would get from a Methodist circuit preacher, you know, in the late 18th century or in the early 19th century, telling people how sinful they are and they're bound for hell and they need to repent and be born again, and even with an invitation at the end. Mm. Uh, now. Uh, on the one hand, if you're if you're you have some Christian background in reading this, it all sounds very Christian. Mm -hmm. But if you don't understand uh, the Bible accurately and properly, if you don't have a historical consciousness and understanding of how the Bible 
reveals Jesus Christ, first in a progressive uh, manner with types and, and foreshadowings and figures and, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament, never referring to him by name, never explaining explicitly what would happen, never saying, and he will come and die on the cross, you know, <laughs> and his mm. mother's name will be Mary. That's actually in the Book of Mormon. Right. Um, uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not aware of the fact that this is not how God worked in the Old Testament, he did not lay it all out ahead of time in those, that kind of explicit fashion, if you don't understand that language is always historically bound, that people always speak, even inspired prophets in the Bible, always speak using the language, the diction, the cultural references of their own time period, they, they, they echo words of scripture that came before them, not words of scripture that will come after them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and if you don't understand this, you will miss just how obviously unhistorical the Book of Mormon is. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it is very clearly a fraudulent scripture mm-hmm. uh, because it sounds very Christian. And so many people, I think, uh, are sort of lulled to sleep by the fact that it sounds so much like the Bible, that it sounds very evangelical. Now, of course, Mormonism isn't static. So after Joseph Smith published the Book of Mormon, he seemed to be making a theological beeline as far away from Orthodox evangelical Christianity as he could make. So whereas in the Book of Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon is more explicitly Trinitarian than the Bible. It actually says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God. That's in the Book of Mormon more than once. Right. Joseph Smith, at the end of his life, ridiculed the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were one God. He said that would make God a monster. It was in, he was, in other words, he was trashing the doctrine that he himself had revealed to the world in the Book of Mormon only 15 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And the Mormons to this day look at that and say, I don't see a problem. <laughs> because they are trained to accept cognitive dissonance, to accept apparent contradictions in their own scriptures, in the teachings of their own prophets, as just, that's part of the mystery of life, and I'm sure it's all going to be explained to us later, and, you know, they they will rationalize it away. But Joseph Smith's theology that he bequeathed to the LDS Church when he died was a radically different theology than what's found in the Book of Mormon. That's why I described the Book of Mormon as kind of the gateway drug to Mormonism. Because mm-hmm. when you read the Book of Mormon, it's like, you know, uh, taking a it's like, you know, taking a puff of marijuana uh, and it's not that bad or, you know, drinking a, a little bit of beer, it's not that bad, but then you end up getting into the hard stuff. And the hard stuff is the radically non-Christian theology. Uh, that Mormonism developed as Joseph Smith uh, flexed his prophetic muscles and kept changing their doctrine. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. This week we got Dr. Rob Bowman on. We're talking about Joseph Smith's Seerstone and Mormonism. Uh, next week we're going to be talking about something that Mormons also don't like to talk about, and that's coffee. In fact, coffee with Jesus. If you've read the comic strip any, David Wilkie, who does that, is going to be my guest talking about it. We're going to talk about about art and apologetics and how Christians can use art in the media in that sense in order to spread Christian messages and such. So we're going to be talking about comics 
next week in part. <coughs> but for now, let's get back to Dr. Bowman talking about this. Now, let's let's go to the gold plates also. I'd like to ask something about that because sure. you said Martin Harris saw the plate supposedly later on. Now, whenever any Christian does any defense of the resurrection of Jesus and talking about how all these people are saw the resurrected Jesus, we are going to hear back, well, a lot of people also saw the golden plates of Joseph Smith. You believe those too? <laughs> right. Now, this is a very important question because you're right. They, uh, Mormons will bring this up uh, a lot. And, in fact, I've also seen skeptics bring it up who mm-hmm. don't believe in the resurrection. They'll say, well, right. you, you, you Christians uh, make a big deal about the witnesses of the resurrection. What about the gold plates? What about the angel Moroni that, that Joseph's three friends said that they saw? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this is why it's important when we present the evidence for the resurrection to talk not simply about the number of witnesses, but the quality of the witnesses. Mm-hmm. By quality, I do not necessarily mean their moral fa- fabric, their moral character, their moral upstanding virtuousness, mm-hmm. although that could be part of it. Um, but I mean the quality of their testimonies when you consider everything in context. Now, and also what it is to to which they are bearing testimony, what it is that they are saying that they saw. Let's talk first about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's an historical fact that Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified Mm -hmm. by the order of Pontius Pilate, uh, by the Roman authorities. Uh, It was something that was witnessed uh, his death on the cross, witnessed by Roman and Jewish authorities, as well as others who cared to be in the vicinity at the time. So that was established, publicly verified fact uh, that Jesus had died. <clears throat> then, according to the Gospels, and according to Paul's account in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, various individuals saw Jesus alive after his death and burial. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> We have different uh, accounts of these in the, in the Gospels, as well as Paul's uh, simple list. It's not a historical narrative, but a list of resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. Uh, what we see in these accounts is that Jesus appeared to various individuals at various times of his choosing and his control. Uh, no human, no mortal human being, Jesus, of course, was a resurrected man, but uh, no mortal human being, no one besides Jesus, had any control over when, where, or to whom these appearances took place. Peter did not gather the disciples together in a room and say, hey, guys, I've got Jesus in the other room. You want to see him? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, if you, if you pray real hard, and you're and you're real sincere, and you you wait patiently. I'll show him to you. That uh, n- nothing like that ever happens. In fact, Jesus appears to people and generally catches them totally by surprise. Uh, they're not looking for him. They're not expecting him. Uh, and no one is in control of these occurrences. Uh, Jesus appears to family members, he appears to friends, he appears to a a couple people that didn't believe in him at the time. Most notoriously, he appeared to an enemy uh, of the Christian faith, uh, Saul of Tarsus, uh, also Mm -hmm. known as Paul, and appeared to him. And, uh, of course, Saul of Tarsus certainly wasn't looking for Christ. Um, And so this is what you have with the resurrection. Now let's talk about 
the witnesses to Joseph Smith's gold plates and uh, the angel Moroni. There are 11 of these witnesses in total. They're all men. Uh, of course, various women saw Jesus alive. No, no women ever saw the gold plates or the angel Moroni, at least not officially. There are anecdotes told 50, 100 years later by individuals who claim to know somebody who was a woman who saw them, but they're not very reliable stories. Mm -hmm. Even to uh, Mormons. Yeah, I mean, you'll, there's one or two that Mormons like these stories, but they're not they're not considered they're not considered historical evidence. They're just mm -hmm. kind of nice stories. Well, uh, let, let's let's lay down the facts here. Mm -hmm. According to the official story, now Joseph received the plates into his custody in September of 1827. They were taken away for a little while when he lost 116 pages of manuscript we talked about earlier, but then he got the gold plates back and uh, dictated a translation of them. Mm -hmm. They were then uh, apparently returned to the angel's custody or in some other way disposed of in the summer of 1829. We don't have an exact date as to when this happened. We don't know exactly what happened to the plates. Uh, for some reason, that is not part of the official record, uh, but it appears that Joseph uh, either got rid of them, if he had anything like that, or gave them back to the angel, if you believe that, however you want to explain it. Anyway, so for almost two years, with a, a, an interruption at one point, Joseph had these gold plates in his possession. During that entire period, until the very end, nobody was allowed to see the plates. If they were in the house, they were covered up with a blanket or other cloth to cover them up so nobody could actually see them. Uh, even his wife, mm. Emma, yep. never saw the gold plates. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. Right. Um, Joseph would allow his wife to pick up the plates covered in the blankets to move them so that she could dust under them on the table but that was as close as she ever got to the plates. Uh, his mother and his mother never saw the plates. Uh, and she had lots of opportunities to see the plates. Joseph apparently told his associates and, and family members when he first had the plates that they were not allowed to look at them on pain of death. Martin's very clear about that. He, he understood that if he were to attempt to look at the plates, he could die. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's got, all the, he's got these plates, supposedly, for two years almost, and he never shows them to anybody. During that entire period that he's translating the Book of Mormon. Then at the very end, in the summer of 1829, he allows two groups of men to see the plates. He has been telling them for some time that God was going to allow some of them to see the plates, and uh, but without telling them who would be allowed to see them. And people were begging, please, can I see the plates? Please, can I see the plates? And so eventually, Joseph arranged for two separate meetings in which uh, he took his uh, the guys out into the woods and to a secluded area. Nobody else is around. Mm -hmm. And in the first uh, of these, he took three men, Martin Harris, 
John Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery. Cowdery was the main scribe who 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 took the dictation for most of what we call the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And John Whitmer was it was in his house uh, that his father's house that they were staying when they did this dictation. Uh, so he took three guys out into the woods, and supposedly they saw the angel Moroni and the plates. Uh, they didn't touch the plates. Uh, they didn't get to read them or anything like that or look at the characters on them, but they saw the plates, supposedly, and the angel. Uh, and in fact, it was a little bit more complicated than that. Caldry and, and Whitmer saw the angel and the plates only after Martin Harris withdrew from the group and went off to it by himself because apparently he, his piety wasn't up to snuff and he was holding up the show. Mm-hmm. And so after the two of them with Joseph got to see the angel on the plates, then Joseph met uh, with Martin Harris alone and they prayed hard and all this stuff and then then uh, Martin was able to supposedly to see the angel on the plates. Now in all of this apparently a great amount of faith and piety and sincerity and 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 you know desire was necessary in order to see the plates and then God would grant them this visitation by the angel Moroni uh, and, 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 and a vision of the plates years later these a couple of these guys at least spoke about their experience in visionary terms that is as if it was something of a spiritual experience not just simply a matter of, oh, look, there's some gold plates. How about that? You know? mm-hmm. um, then shortly after the witnesses, the three witnesses ex- uh, experience, according to what we're told, Joseph showed the plates to eight other men. Now, uh, this was an entirely different event, apparently. They didn't mm-hmm. have to pray first. They didn't have to have any particular spiritual experience. Joseph showed them the plates, allowed them to hold them, allowed them to touch them. Uh, And the guys apparently said that they saw some characters on them that looked really old. (laughs) Joseph said, okay, you guys all satisfied? Oh, yeah, yeah, good, 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 Joseph, yeah. And Joseph uh, took the plates away, and that's the last anybody saw them. Now, notice the radical difference between these stories and the resurrection appearances. Joseph's totally in control. Nobody gets to see the plates unless Joseph shows them the plates. Mm-hmm. Also, what is it that they're seeing? They're not seeing a person who comes and goes as he chooses. They're seeing metal plates, inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. Why do some of them need faith to see them and others don't? I mean, the mm-hmm. questions just multiply. Right. The, 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 when you get into the story details and examine it carefully and closely and frankly critically meaning not necessarily that you're trying to find fault but you're trying to see what's really going on what you have is a magician a a, a somebody who is able to use some kind of manipulation of his audience to get them to see what he wants them to see mm-hmm. Uh, did Joseph have some metal plates? I think he probably did. Uh, were they gold plates that had been inscribed in Reformed Egyptian hundreds of years earlier? No, I don't think so. <laughs> right. uh, by the way, Joseph's father on their farm 
where Joseph had lived when he got this thing rolling. Joseph's father had a cooper shop. A cooper shop was a, a, a little shop where people worked with uh, metals, including uh, tin, copper, and other metals to make things like buckets and you know other kinds of metal things that people needed on a farm. Uh, and <clears throat> this would this uh, cooper shop would have had uh, plenty of sheets of tin that you could cut with the correct tools that would have been in the shop to form into uh, thin plates of metal uh, that could be used uh, in a stack of plates hidden in a, wrapped in a blanket sitting on a table in Joseph's house or later on in the Whitmer house uh, and pass, pass off as the gold plates. Mm -hmm. This fits testimonies from these witnesses who said they were allowed to hold the plates covered in the blanket and under, except for the one, the one case and lift them so they could kind of guess as to their weight. The consistent testimony of these men is that the plates weighed between 40 to 60 pounds. They also gave us the dimensions of the plates, and Joseph Smith himself specified the, the dimensions of the plates. And when you look at the dimensions of the plates and the, how high the stack was and so forth, if it's gold, they should weigh close to 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. If they're tin they should weigh 40 to 60 pounds. <laughs> well, I think that they were tin. Uh, and Joseph was passing off a stack of tin plates. Maybe he had uh, scratched some curious-looking characters on the top plate or something uh, to pass them off as, as the gold plates. Could it be they were maybe a little bit gold-plated on the outside? Uh, it's possible he used some something to, to make them appear... Uh, the, on the top to appear golden. Uh, tin normally doesn't look like gold, uh, so I'm not sure exactly how that was done. Uh, <clears throat> but it, you know, he could have burnished it in some in a fire, or he could have done any number of things. I suppose I, I'm not a I'm not a, a metallurgist, but uh, I do know this that the, the weight is off. Mm. Even if they were, let's say, half gold, um, they should have weighed well over 100 pounds, and. Uh, <clears throat> There are stories of Joseph running around uh, with the plates tucked under one arm, mm -hmm. running through the woods, fending off attackers. No indication in the description of these uh, these events that Joseph was given Herculean strength or, or Samson-like strength uh, supernaturally. He's just uh, being being uh, diligent to to run with the plates. By the way, that brings brings up another question about the plates. I mentioned that the three guys that the three witnesses had to have faith and pray to see the plates and it had, they had to be revealed to them. Uh, if, if the plates needed to be revealed and you couldn't just see them, of course that raises a question about the eight witnesses, but it also raises a question as to why Joseph needed to hide the plates in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, the story is that Joseph... Uh, at first had a lot of trouble keeping the plates out of the hands of his enemies who wanted them for treasure. By the way, they thought they were gold. That's why they, that's why they wanted them. They, if mm -hmm. they thought they were tin, they wouldn't have been interested, right? They right. thought they were gold plates and worth something. And uh, Joseph certainly had led everybody to believe that these were gold plates that were worth a lot. 
And so he was hiding them in all kinds of places. He hid them in a barrel of beans. He hid them in a fireplace. He hid them, uh, you know, in, in a hayloft or you know some kind of a loft across the way in a, in, a, in the store. Uh, you know, he hid them out in the woods in a log. I mean, he hid them in various places to try to keep them out of the hands of his enemies. Why that would all be necessary if he's got regular communication with an angel who could, of course, take them when they were not being used, uh, and, or, and if they were really not something people could see without faith in the first place, why he would need to uh, go to all these lengths to hide the plates is something of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would seem like you're thinking about a simple housewife trying to lift even just 40 to 60 pounds just to dust the table. And I think it's for tanners who regularly have this booth set up in Salt Lake City when these Mormons come by and they have the gold plates or a proximity of gold plates that would weigh exactly what Joseph Smith would be carrying and say, okay, go ahead, try one of them, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's Bill McKeever's ministry, Ah. Mormonism Research Ministry. I've Mm -hmm. seen him do that at Manti at the mm. Manti pageant and people cannot really lift those and yeah. if anyone's interested Bill McKeever was on the program talking a lot about the golden plates in our first years you can go back and check the archives and you can find those <coughs> out there and so what about the uh, claims also that some people say these witnesses I hear conflicting things. Some say these witnesses never denied seeing the golden plate. Some say they apostatized later on. What's the deal of that? Well, some of them did uh, apostatize. <laughs> they did leave the church. A couple of them left and eventually got back into it. Nobody uh, of the eleven men. Uh, well, some of them died not very much lo- longer. So you know later. So, so they didn't. You know they didn't all live for fifty more years. But uh, none of them ever denied uh, the Book of Mormon, so far as we know. There is a reference in a poem somewhere to Oliver Cowdery possibly having uh, denied the Book of Mormon. But uh, other than that, and that's at least open to debate, um, it doesn't seem that any of them denied that the Book of Mormon was the Word of God or denied that Joseph had translated the Book of Mormon from the gold plates. Mm-hmm. Now, these men were all uh, involved in that. They were all supportive of it. And those that distanced themselves from Mormonism or from Joseph Smith personally later on did so for other reasons. Uh, there were financial scandals in the 1830s. There was the polygamy issue in the late 1830s and early 1840s. Mm-hmm. There was Joseph's polytheism uh, as well, and so there were a number of things that that led various Mormons, including some of the witnesses, <coughs> either to leave or uh, to you know raise a ruckus and get themselves kicked out. Um, but uh, it wasn't the Book of Mormon. They they all seemed to be confident that the Book of Mormon was true. They'd all had some kind of experience that they felt validated the Book of Mormon. Uh, so. Uh, I, you know, I think that the reason why these witnesses are, uh, you know, uh, questionable isn't that they changed their mind about it later on, but that their reasons for accepting it were evidence of Joseph's manipulation from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, David Whitmer, 
would tell, and he told the story more than once, of watching Joseph dictate the Book of Mormon with his face in his hat, with the seer stone in the hat. And to Martin, to, to, uh, Martin Harris, to David Whitmer, and to other of these guys, the fact that Joseph was able to do that shows that he was inspired. Because, and Mormons today now, that now that they're having to admit that it was the seer stone in the hat, they're also making the same claim. Well, if Joseph was dictating the Book of Mormon with his face in his hat, he obviously wasn't just copying it from, you know, Solomon Spaulding's manuscript or some such thing. He was obviously inspired. Uh, nobody could produce the Book of Mormon doing that. I bet you couldn't do it. Well, the fact that Joseph had his face in his hat shows that it was a very prodigious accomplishment. I agree. But it also means that the alleged supernatural element was totally something that could not be observed by anyone. Because if the stone did have words shining from it as Joseph looked in his hat, nobody could see that except Joseph. Mm -hmm. So I would maintain that the stone in the hat uh, was a ruse used by Joseph to make it appear uh, that he was receiving divine revelation of specific words. Joseph's understanding of, of revelation uh, was, was very... Um, it's almost mechanical. Uh, you know, he would look in the hat, he would see the words, supposedly, and he would dictate the words that he saw. So really, Joseph is a stenographer uh, who's not even doing, you know, writing it down. He's, he's, he's uh, receiving a, 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 a translation. He's not translating himself. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, Joseph eventually weans himself off the seer stone and uh, produces uh, his revelations and translations without using it. But it was it was it was what he had done when he was a treasure hunter. He would look in the in the hat with the stone in it, and he would say whatever came to his mind. Joseph was obviously very good at that. He was very good at uh, at talking, at very good at telling stories, very good at at you know kind of making things up as he went along. If you read the Book of Mormon carefully, you will see evidence of that. You will find dozens of places where Joseph stops in the middle of a sentence and corrects himself or qualifies what he has just said. So he'll say things like, or in other words, <laughs> uh, right in the middle of the sentence, and he does it many, many times in the Book of Mormon because it is a stream of consciousness. It is off the top of his head. Now, we don't know that he did this for the entire Book of Mormon. We don't have a journal uh, keeping a record of, okay, today Joseph dictated Mosiah 2, 1 through you know, eight or something. Uh, what we have is uh, we have various uh, accounts of various things happening during the two-year period that we can kind of correlate with what we have in the Book of Mormon, but we don't have a day-to-day -day account. So we don't know uh, that Joseph dictated all of the Book of Mormon with his face in his hat. And I would argue that he probably didn't. Uh, I would argue that he did that for show when he had other people in the house who were watching him so that they could see, oh, look, this is how he's doing it. But there are parts, portions, portions of the Book of Mormon that I would maintain he probably didn't do that way, and in particular, the biblical passages. Uh, Isaiah 2 through 14, that's 13 chapters of the Book of Isaiah, are quoted almost verbatim, continuously, in the book of 2nd Nephi, in the Book of Mormon. 
as they read in the King James Version with, in most places, very little change, if any. That's probably because Joseph was reading from the King James Version to his scribe and making changes here or there as he felt inclined. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody saw him do that. So we don't know when he did that exactly. We don't know how he did it so that nobody else could see him do it. If he did this, Oliver Cowdery was in on it. I, may, I, I am pretty confident Oliver Cowdery was in on it. But Mormons would not have had a big problem with this if he had. And the reason why I say that is because immediately after the Book of Mormon first printing came out, Joseph Smith went to work on his supposedly inspired translation of the Bible that was going to be the corrected version, restoring all the plain and precious things to the Bible and fixing it. Now, did he do this by looking at his stone and his hat? No. He did it with a King James Version, (laughs) where everybody could see him doing it. He would go through the King James Version, and he would actually mark it up with his uh, associates to change the wording of the King James here or there to make it fit what they wanted it to say. And he made the same kind of changes to the King James Version in the inspired translation as he had in his quotations from the Bible in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. So if he did use the King James Version to to dictate portions of the Book of Mormon, as I think it's clear that he did, he probably did that when other people weren't watching, but Oliver probably had no problem with it. Because in Oliver's mind... uh, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that he thought this was a good thing and sincere practice. In Molliver's mind, uh, Joseph is inspired to use the Bible when he chooses to use the Bible. And he's inspired when he chooses to make changes to the Bible. And the proof of that is that they all went along with it when Joseph did this out in the open with the King James Version the very next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and Everything we do here is listener-supported, and as I said, yeah, today's kind of my special day, so if you want to celebrate that, more better way than by supporting the Ministry of Deeper Waters. Now, if you want to do that, go to our website at deeperwaters.ddns.net. There's a link there. It helps support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link, it takes you to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right spot? Yes, that's my in-laws ministry, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation there. And then you contact me or Debbie or Mike and say, Hey, I made a donation. I went to go to Deeper Waters. And we'll make sure that Deeper Waters, we get that, minist- get that donation. And it will be tax deductible. You can also go to the Amazon store we have, buy books you hear about on the show, and you can buy books that I have written or co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or A Creed for the Ages. And you can also support the work of Deeper Waters through jewelry by clicking on the link and buying some jewelry with our friend Lena Cluster. You make a purchase there through Premier Jewelry. Because guys, I've, I've said before, many women, for some reason, really like jewelry. So if you want to get your ladies something special, you go, you make a donation, buy it through Premier Jewelry. We get 25% of whatever you buy. We let them know you bought it for us. So you get something special for your lady, and you get to donate to the ministry at the same time. I, I would really appreciate you do, especially if 
when I continue my education so much now, it, it costs money. So anything you do can really help us out. Now, Dr. Bowman, do you have any organization, institute, whatever that uh, you'd like people to donate to as well? <coughs> Pardon my uh, cough again. Uh, yes, thanks for asking. I am the executive director of the Institute for Religious Research. Uh, our website is irr.org. That's one I, two R's, dot O-R-G. And we have uh, hundreds of articles uh, on uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and uh, articles in defense of biblical Christianity, articles on alleged Bible difficulties, uh, questions about the reliability of the text of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, and, and other such subjects. Mm-hmm. So if you go to our website, irr.org, uh, you can uh, uh, read for hours and hours. Uh, you can also watch our award-winning documentary video, The Lost Book of Abraham, which is about one of the Mormon scriptures that Joseph Smith claimed to have translated after he uh, published the Book of Mormon. And you can watch that video for free. You can also order a DVD of it if you'd like to have that hard media uh, in your home, which is a little bit higher quality than what you can see online. But uh, uh, that's, that's available. Again, you can watch it online for free. And uh, I encourage people to visit our website. And uh, you can also contact our ministry uh, using from our website. We have a contact uh, page there where you can contact us with your comments or questions. And, of course, if you wish to uh, contribute to IRR's ministry, uh, we'd be grateful for that as well. Uh, no expectations there whatsoever. Uh, you're welcome to come and use the site and ask any questions that you like, and there's no obligation there. We also have a newsletter that we send out six times a year with uh, a teaching letter that uh, you get first if you're on the newsletter, and it eventually later on goes up on the website. Uh, so visit our website to find out about the newsletter. And again, the newsletter is, it's a newsletter. It's, it's not a sales pitch. Uh, we're not looking for your money. But if you like what IRR does and want to support it, of course, we'd be uh, very grateful. So uh, thanks, and, and thank you, Nick, for that opportunity. Glad to do it. Now, before we talk about the Book of Abraham, which would be fascinating, there's another story of plates I think could be talked about, if I'm remembering correctly, the Kinderhook plates. Uh, yes. Uh, <coughs> these are... Uh, it's a fascinating story that some some locals uh, wanted to expose Joseph Smith as a fraud, and so they created these metal plates uh, and uh, uh, arranged for Joseph to be shown the plates and uh, uh, given an opportunity to <coughs> show off his uh, prowess as a prophet of God to to uh, identify what the plates were and Joseph uh, at first accepted the plates as authentic and ancient and <clears throat> pretended uh, that he could know, he knew what they were about and then later on it was revealed that uh, these were in fact uh, manufactured uh, by <clears throat> some of these people living in his area uh, as a way of exposing him. There's another story that's a little bit like that, where uh, a fellow came in to, to meet Joseph Smith, had a uh, a book uh, that was, if I remember the story correctly, this is off the top of my head. He was it was it was a book uh, of Greek literature, and uh, so the fellow showed Joseph the Greek uh, book, 
and uh, Joseph insisted that it was, uh, I forget, Egyptian or something. <laughs> he didn't even know what language it was. And um, uh, so there are a number of stories like this where Joseph was uh, kind of caught in uh, showing off a lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, 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 the most notorious one, though, is the Book of Abraham. The, these were... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, scrolls, papyri scrolls that were uh, uh, kept with some mummies that the church bought from a traveling salesman in 1835. Now the papyri were authentic ancient Egyptian papyri. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> dating, we now know, from about the 2nd century B.C., give or take. Um, Joseph claimed that they were uh, the writings of the Genesis patriarchs, Abraham and Joseph. And so the church bought them. And he, he made that claim before the church even bought them. So the, the church bought them so he could have them and so he could translate them. And he translated part of one of them uh, and published the translation in their uh, newspaper uh, in 1842, 1843, uh, under the title of the Book of Abraham, and asserted that the, this was a text that was written by... Abraham in his own hand upon papyrus. Mm -hmm. uh, now, while he was working on this, and by the way, he didn't use a seer stone for any of this, he would have the scroll or scrolls rolled out, laid out on the floor or on a table, usually on the floor, and apparently, and he would be looking over them with uh, uh, notes that he had been taking, and uh, people would come in and he would show them the scrolls and he would he would point to a place on the papyrus and he would say, look, there's the signature of Abraham. <laughs> uh, so was, there's no question that Joseph claimed that the papyri were from the time of Abraham and Joseph and written by them personally. These are the autographs, in other words, not just copies. Mm -hmm. Well, now we know that's not true because um, after Joseph died, the papyri went into various hands from one person to another and some of them got apparently burned in the fire of Chicago in 1871 or whatever that year was. But then they resurfaced in the 1960s and were given back to the church what was left of them. What was left of them was um, enough because it included uh, fragments from the papyrus that had one of the drawings that Joseph duplicated in his Book of Abraham publication and interpreted as a scene depicting the Egyptian pharaoh attempting to sacrifice Abraham on an altar and being mm -hmm. stopped by the Holy Spirit in the form of a bird. Well, after the papyri were found and uh, scholars were allowed to look at them, both Mormon and non-Mormon scholars, it became understood, and everybody agrees on this, that the text of the papyrus is not the book of Abraham. Mm -hmm. that it is an Egyptian pagan funeral text uh, giving essentially a instructions and prayers for the safe passage of the departed to the afterlife, according to Egyptian mythological and cosmological beliefs. The drawing, uh, the interpretation of the drawing, which Joseph had interpreted as Abraham being sacrificed on an altar by a pharaoh, um, that drawing is disputed. Egyptologists, all of them except the two or three uh, Mormon Egyptologists that are around, mm -hmm. 
Uh, all of the non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that this is a fairly conventional depiction of Anubis uh, standing over uh, the departed, uh, preparing the body for uh, the person's safe passage to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Consistent with what the text is about, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mormons are still trying to argue that the drawing might represent something else. Uh, <clears throat> might represent Abraham on the altar. But in any case, the, the, the evidence is now in that the Book of Abraham is a fraud. In order to get around this, Mormons are now offering a variety of ad hoc explanations. The, the one that seems to be gaining ground now is what is called the catalyst theory. It's an admission that the text on the papyrus has nothing to do with Abraham, but that as as Joseph looked at the papyrus, he was inspired to receive a revelation of an entirely different book that really wasn't corresponding to what was on the papyrus, and that this revelation that was catalyzed in his mind by looking at the Egyptian papyrus was what we call the book of Abraham. Well, if you believe that, what you're really saying is the papyrus is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Now, notice, notice that there is an interesting parallel here. Joseph translates, Joseph claimed he translated the book of Abraham from the papyrus. 200 years later almost, Mormons are saying, well, translated could mean different things. And, in fact, uh, it's not what was on the papyrus, but was something God revealed to Joseph. And the papyrus was, in effect, a kind of prop that was used uh, in the the inspiration process. Now, let's go back to the Book of Mormon, sort of bring this full circle. The traditional view was Joseph was looking at the plates, the gold plates, through the stone spectacles and reading them, but reading them in English through the stone spectacles by a supernatural miracle. Mm-hmm. Now it turns out that the stone spectacles weren't used, and Joseph didn't look at the plates when he produced his translation. He had mm-hmm. his head in his hat. Mm-hmm. That means the gold plates are also irrelevant. You don't need the gold plates to explain the Book of Mormon because Joseph didn't use the gold plates to dictate the Book of Mormon. He never read the gold plates mm-hmm. through stone spectacles or anything else. Now, there's something really odd about this. Joseph's translating the Book of Mormon from gold plates. It turns out he doesn't use the gold plates and doesn't need them. Joseph translates the Book of Abraham from papyri. turns out he didn't really translate the papyri, and he didn't need them either. Now, you want to call this translation. You want to call this inspired. You want to believe what you want to believe. You're welcome to do so, but this isn't cogent. It isn't coherent, and it isn't credible. It's not even plausible. The the evidence is now in. Joseph was a charlatan. He was a fraud. He was passing himself as somebody who was inspired by God to translate texts that he wasn't really translating. When you uh, brought up the statement about his own hand upon the powers, I remember there was a book about title, and I went and I looked it up, and I'm sure you're very familiar with it because it says it's published by the Institute for Religious Research. That is correct. Our organization... Our organization, before I was associated with it, by the way, so I can't claim any credit for this, our organization produced both that book, By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus, which is a critique of the Book of Abraham, and the DVD that I mentioned, The Lost Book of Abraham. Uh, The book, By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus, was the first publication 
to present full color photographs of the actual Joseph Smith papyri, the ten fragments that he claimed to have translated in the Book of Abraham. Uh, at the time, uh, there was still a lack of information available to the public as to the actual correct translation of the papyrus uh, that Joseph claimed to have translated. So uh, the book spends a lot of time uh, essentially documenting that the papyrus isn't about Abraham, but is this Egyptian pagan funeral text called the Book of Breathings. Well, that's not even in dispute now. <laughs> so if, if somebody orders the book, uh, which I would encourage them to do, they can probably skim through that part because that's not even in debate now. And they can go straight to the parts of the book that, ex that discuss all of the Mormon ad hoc explanations for the problem which haven't changed in the last 20 years. They're still mm. using the same explanations, the catalyst theory that I mentioned, a missing papyrus uh, theory, and other explanations, none of which work. You know, when uh, we're talking about campaign, um, Jay Warner Wallace has been on the show before. He's going to be on again in November talking about his newest book, and he's done some research on Mormonism as well, and he says, in his opinion, the Book of Abraham... Uh, I'm pretty sure he said that the Book of Abraham is the weakest point to go after Mormonism, of course. But it, it's something that we have the documents right here. We can yeah. look at them. So if you if you want to find the Achilles here of Mormonism, it's the Book of Abraham. Yes, I, I call it the smoking gun. Mm -hmm. And and that's exactly right. Because, <clears throat> look, we have the actual paper, the actual papyrus, uh, not, not all of it, but we have the part of it that includes the drawing that Joseph interpreted as part of the story in the book of Abraham, of Abraham being on an altar and almost being sacrificed by the mm -hmm. pagan uh, Egyptian pharaoh. The book of Abraham says that drawing is at the beginning of the book. The drawing is at the beginning of the papyrus. It's the same paper. It's the exact same, it's the exact document that Joseph claimed to translate. There isn't any question about that. There's no realistic way around it. So there you've got it. You can compare. And, and there are numerous Egyptologists that have read the papyrus and translated it and interpreted the drawing, and they all agree. And even the Mormon Egyptologists agree on the words of the text. They can't get around that. There's no way around that. But drawings, people can use imagination and creativity to to offer some reinterpretation of. So they're okay. still holding out on that. But the fact is that it has been demonstrably proven false. Mm -hmm. It is the smoking gun. And this isn't just non-Mormons saying this. There was a, st uh, a, a paper that was uh, put out a couple years back, maybe four years back now, where they had done a, a survey. And it's not a scientific uh, survey, but it's, it was a survey of people who had left Mormonism and they asked them, what were some of the issues that led you to leave Mormonism or to doubt that Mormonism was true? There were two issues that were at the top of the list. The Book of Abraham and Joseph's polygamy. Mm -hmm. Those two issues were tied at number one. So if you want to know what you should talk about with your Mormon friend, those would be the two that you should probably start with. Now, of course, you can talk about anything you want, and the seer stone is a good topic. We've been discussing that. Uh, 
people who are, uh, you know, in the position to care might want to talk about the race issue, uh, the blacks and the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of, and that's those are also big issues, by the way, that the seer stone and blacks and the priesthood are both big issues. But <clears throat> the polygamy issue, particularly Joseph's polygamy, which the church essentially tried to cover up for a long time, uh, and uh, the the uh, Book of Abraham are the apparently the two leading uh, problems that they've had the hardest time explaining away. So yes, and, and like I said, people can go to our website irr.org and uh, go to the section on Mormonism, and they can find resources on the Book of Abraham and uh, resources on polygamy. Now we've also not only do we have these older uh, the book and the video I mentioned earlier on the Book of Abraham, we have very current resources on both the Book of Abraham and polygamy. For example, we have a lengthy article by Robert Rittner, Egyptologist at the University of Chicago, mm-hmm. responding in detail to the article that the Mormon Church published about a year ago trying to defend the Book of Abraham. He goes through it piece by piece and dismantles it. And again, this is the leading Egyptologist expert on the Joseph Smith papyri. Uh, we also have several articles responding to the Mormons' attempt to explain away the problem of Joseph's polygamy. That's a very interesting subject because they've almost admitted everything. They've admitted Joseph had over 30 wives. They had, they've admitted that several, about close to a dozen of them were married to other men at the time. They've admitted that Joseph had sexual relations with at least some of these women, uh, and then they've tried to massage the details around so that it doesn't look like Joseph did anything particularly immoral. <laughs> but it's a it's an uphill climb now because they've essentially admitted almost everything that you could imagine that they would admit. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you read a footnote in that article, they've admitted that Joseph might have had a couple of children by some of these women. Okay. <clears throat> You know, when so those are some those are some topics that people should become uh, familiar with because uh, these are very helpful in leading Mormons to recognize that what they've been taught isn't true. Now I want to emphasize something here because uh, I know we're getting close to being done here, and I don't want to leave this out. Okay. This is not about simply trashing Mormonism or tearing down Mormons' faith. Right. This is about desperately wanting to help Mormons to have their faith based on something that's true and sound and reliable. And frankly, uh, Mormonism doesn't fit that description. Mm -hmm. And we could simply stand still and do nothing, and Mormons would leave. Because this information is out there, and they're finding it. And many of them are seeing through the smokescreen of explanations that the church's apologists are offering, and they're recognizing that they've been lied to, that they've been deceived, that they've been manipulated, all of that. Unfortunately, what a lot of these people are doing, then, is they're simply abandoning ship and leaving not just Mormonism, but leaving Christianity entirely. They're deciding to become agnostics or skeptics or just non-religious. They're giving up on religion. They're giving up on Jesus. They're giving up on God. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know what? I'm done with it. I'm just done. Now, anybody who... I I would compare this to somebody going through a divorce. If you are a woman who has been through a terrible divorce and you realize that your husband cheated on you, lied to you, or whatever, 
and you ended up having to leave and the marriage was ended, you're probably going to be gun-shy about relationships for a little while. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to jump right into another marriage. Probably, in fact, wouldn't be a good idea for you to jump right into another marriage. Mm-hmm. But what you don't want to do is become so disillusioned and so broken and cynical that you say, I'm never going to have a relationship with a man ever again. I'm just, And I know women that have been there. I know women that have gone through this. <laughs> I know a woman that's gone through it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, it's understandable. But when we're talking about a relationship with the creator of the universe, it's vitally important that people understand that if it turns out that Mormonism isn't true, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that Christ didn't rise from the dead. We talked about that. We talked about the difference between the evidence of the resurrection, which is very sound evidence, and the uh, alleged evidence for the gold plates or for Mormonism, which is just not good evidence. People need to understand that if they come to recognize that Mormonism isn't true, that this is now an opportunity, yes, to go through a healing process, probably a grieving process, as you, oh, yeah. you know, and, and you may not be ready to go to church for a little while, but don't give up on God. Uh, be open to the possibility that God is to be found somewhere else, and where you're going to find the truth about God that's reliable, that's uh, that's going to stand up to scrutiny, uh, where no manipulation and lying need need be uh, involved at all, is the God who was revealed to us in the Bible. Hmm. And so one of the things that we're really pushing hard at IRR to do is not simply to publish articles critiquing Mormonism, but even in those articles, to show to draw the contrasts between Mormonism and biblical Christianity to turn people's attention to the truth of the Bible, the reliability of what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, and why they can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, even if they can't trust the Book of Mormon, or the Book of Abraham, or Joseph Smith. You know, that's something I, I tell people that whenever I have Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come in my view, I'm not trying so much to tear their organization down, although that's part of it in some extent, but I'm trying to build the Bible up and say if you can give them a firm foundation in the Bible that way whenever they do leave their organization they're going to have something they can fall back on because I think what we have to understand is when when we're talking with Mormons especially everything (coughs) in their culture their worldview everything their friends their family it's all Mormon if you take that away they've got nothing left right it's hard Uh, and so it's vitally important that we uh, present the positive alternative in the gospel of the Bible, the New Testament. It's teaching about Jesus, mm-hmm. and and not just uh, as a, as an alternate doctrinal belief system, but show it in our lives that, that mm-hmm. following Jesus Christ makes a positive difference in our lives. It's it's wonderful to be in a faith where you are not afraid of the truth. Mm-hmm where you are not afraid of hard questions. Right. Listen, I, I'll be really honest. I know some extreme, you know, uh, ultra-conservative or fundamentalist Christians are. Mm. They are nervous about getting into uh, anything that might be a little bit different from what they've been taught. Mm-hmm. As an evangelical Christian uh, whose faith is not in uh, my denomination or my uh you know, tradition that I've been taught, but is in the Bible as the Word of God, 
uh, I'm free to explore difficult questions. Right. Does the Bible teach this or does it teach that? What's the best way to harmonize what the Bible says with science or history? Mm. Uh, you know, how, how do we address you know these controversial ethical questions uh, and social questions today? I'm not afraid of any of those because I'm not afraid to change my views if the evidence supports it because my faith isn't in you know what some religion tells me I'm supposed to believe but my faith is in the abiding truth of the word of God mm -hmm. and I have found that the Bible uh, the Bible doesn't just keep up with the times the Bible is ahead of the times mm -hmm. the Bible is better than our own culture and if we really study the Bible not with a view to ratifying or, or, or uh, validating what we've already chosen to believe, but really trying to get deep into what it's actually saying, going into those deeper waters. <laughs> uh, Good then, terminology. Uh, yeah, then, then we're, we're, we're going to be pleasantly surprised that the Bible can withstand any reasonable scrutiny in a way that simply isn't true, for example, of the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham. Yeah, I find when I'm online, I'm engaging with some skeptics, and they'll recommend... A book that they think just absolutely destroys Christianity. I'm going to the library website around here immediately, tapping in and saying, where can I get this book? I want to read this book if I can. But then go back <laughs> and say, okay, um, how about you read such and such book by such and such Christian scholar? Um, um, uh, um, I find that most people I dialogue with online who, dis who argue against Christianity they don't tend to read anything that disagrees with them. You know, what's funny about that is that uh, whereas Christianity, at least in its uh, evangelical slash fundamentalist uh, traditions, is not generally carrying the reputation as being primarily about rationality and so mm -hmm. forth. I mean, I, I think at its best it is, but even though that's not its reputation, that is the reputation of the skeptic and the atheist, right? They're supposed mm -hmm. to be the rationalists. They're supposed oh, to yeah. be the, the pe people that will follow every lead to the dogged end, you know. The pinnacle of reason. Because it's all about the truth. Mm -hmm. But yet, when most of these internet skeptics that you, you know, run into, they, they are not really pursuing truth. They, 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 are, they are just a, as much about memes and, and uh, soundbite type uh, objections as anybody else is. Mm -hmm. And so we have... You know, it is true. You know uh, that they will like, they will read people that validate what they have already decided to believe. Mm -hmm. And our job is is tough because sometimes we have to try to persuade people to be open to the possibility that something else might be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where you know apologetics has a very crucial, essential, important place in the Christian church but it it's it, it doesn't work alone because obviously relationships with people become very important in an individual's journey to coming to faith in Christ and the work of the holy spirit for whom you know whose work we pray in people's lives is indispensable mm -hmm. not to give them some kind of you know zap revelation that is true as in the mormon testimony but as in softening them in their hearts and opening their eyes to see what's actually there and to be honest and and, uh, and uh, candid about what truth is and, and to be open to the truth. So uh, we, we do apologetics in conjunction with 
the work of uh, personal friendship evangelism and reaching out to people in love and praying for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. All those things are essential for people to be able to come to faith. Well, Dr. Bowman, it's been a wonderful interview, very eye-opening over here. Now, you've talked about some. Do you have a blog website such that people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your work? Uh, yes. Again, our website is irr.org. That stands for the Institute for Religious Research, irr.org. And we have a contact page. People can contact us, or you can write to info at irr.org. That works if you just want to send us an email. We're also on Facebook. So go to our Facebook page, search for the Institute for Religious Research, and you'll find us with no trouble, I think. And uh, check out our, our Facebook page there and uh, invite people to contact us with their comments, their questions. Uh, if there's resources that you need, if there's uh, difficult issues that you want help addressing, uh, you know, we're, that's what we're here for. So uh, invite people to do that. One more time, our website is irr.org. Now, do you have any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I, Nick, I really want to thank you for spending these two hours with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hope people will support what you do mm -hmm. and that they will tell others about uh, what you do because I, I, the more people that be, can get exposed to this kind of information uh, from all the different uh, excellent guests that you have, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Uh, covering a, a quite a variety of topics, then I think uh, the, you know the better off we'll all be. So I, I hope people will spread the word about what you're doing and that they will support what you're doing. Uh, I'd also just like to encourage people uh, to do your own uh, homework, to read yeah. the Bible carefully. Don't take my word for anything. Don't take Nick's word for anything. Right. Study the Bible. Study the historical evidence pertaining to the subjects that we've talked about. Uh, uh, you know, if you can take the time to actually getting to the primary sources, uh, look at what the Mormons have actually said. Look at what Joseph Smith actually said. Uh, you can you can learn about these things for yourself. It can become your knowledge, not just knowledge that you're repeating from somebody else. Um, apologetics is not about uh, taking a defensive posture to defend what you've already decided to accept, no matter what. Apologetics is about standing up for the truth and being willing and, and receptive to learning in the same process the same time as you are helping others to learn. Uh, I've had to change my mind about things. I'm open to doing so again. Uh, and that's, that's an essential characteristic of a genuine apologist is that you're, you're not just digging mm -hmm. in your heels uh, no matter what the evidence, but you're you're seeking to pursue the truth. Uh, we are uh, fellow beggars who have found some bread and uh, want to share it with you. And uh, but you you need to do your own study. Uh, we need Christians to uh, incorporate apologetics and the life of the mind in their Christian experience. Christianity is not just about how you feel. It's not just about uh, Jesus making you feel good. It's mm -hmm. about Jesus being the Lord of your life, and that includes your mental life. That includes your thinking. It mm -hmm. includes your education. It includes what you choose to read and what you choose to watch. It includes 
as Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that means if we're going to love God with all our minds, it means we need to consecrate our minds to his service by seeking to understand his truth in the Bible as best we can and to stand up for it in a culture in which that truth is constantly under assault. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Bowman, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I'd like to thank you for that word of wisdom that you've given us. Well, that might not be the best term when talking about Mormons. And I'd like to <laughs> thank you for the, uh, the kind words you gave about deeper waters as well. And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. It would be my pleasure. And I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have David Wilkie coming on, author of Coffee with Jesus. We're going to talk about art and apologetics. Very interesting topic. So now I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs> <laughs>